Welcome to the Future of Money podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to this four-part series about the digital euro. I'm sitting here with Manuel Klein and we are going to talk about what is digital money, what is the digital euro, who can issue the digital euro, do we need a digital euro and we want to use this four-part series in order to communicate to you, dear listeners, how we understand the digital euro and why we believe it's important and interesting. So, Manuel, thank you for being here today. And maybe let's start with a quick uh, introduction round. Yeah, Alex, thanks again for inviting me here to this series. I'm really looking forward to it as well, uh, to, to shed some light on uh, this very, very interesting and important topic. And uh, maybe as a background uh, about me, um, I'm uh, highly interested and have been uh, involved in this debate about um, yeah, how the current monetary system works, but also how it could be digitized or digitalized um, for um, yeah, roughly five years now. Um, I've, I'm working for an NGO called Monetative here in Germany, and we educate about the um, uh, yeah, functionalities and uh, the shortcomings of the current monetary system. And obviously also think about uh, future alternatives about it. Uh, in the last two years, I worked as a consultant in a financial data um, company, but now um, quite looking forward to it. Uh, since uh, January 1st, I'm now working in the blockchain consulting space. Um, so uh, I also focus my um, professional time in this topic here. Yeah, so congrats again to your new job. Maybe a couple of words about myself. My name is Alexander Bechtel. I am currently finalizing my PhD at the University of St. Gallen. And when you are hearing this podcast, I'm hopefully already done and um, have, have finalized the PhD. Uh, on top of that, I have started in, in August 2020 in the strategy department of Deutsche Bank. In, in the corporate bank and there I'm responsible for uh, DLT, blockchain, digital currencies and my task is to yeah, work out a strategy for, for Deutsche Bank how to, to tackle this uh, whole blockchain uh, industry and, and ecosystem. Okay, as said, in this four-part series, we are going to talk about the digital euro or digital money more generally. And we thought that at first it would be very important to talk about how our current monetary system works. Exactly. And uh, the main question that we want to tackle, especially at the end of this episode, is the question uh, whether the digitization or the, 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 the money will be digitized or digitalized. And where's the difference uh, between the uh, potentially new digitized money and the current digital money that we already have? So basically focusing on uh, how the current system works, what the uh, euro is actually looking like currently, uh, which different forms exist and how it could uh, turn out to be a digital euro in the future. Yeah? Um, and maybe starting or jumping right into it, um, as an introduction, um, I believe it is very, very important to understand that we currently live in a uh, public-private partnership where public institutions such as central bank, I mean, most of them are public. We also have uh, private central banks in this world, 
but most of them are public institutions. And uh, these public institutions, these central bank, work together with commercial banks to create the, the, the fiat money that we are currently using, such as the euro. Yeah? And uh, they both create money, but for very different use cases, and we want to highlight these. Yeah? So um, currently we have two different money circuits. Um, so the vast majority of the money, um, this is commercial bank money, this is uh, private credit of, of commercial banks. And um, the other um, money circuit uh, is central bank money. So um, either digital central bank money, which uh, are the digital central bank reserves, uh, and only commercial banks or those institutions that have an account at the central bank have access to this money, right? And um, there's a, a strong divergence of the quantity of the money that is circulating in each of the circuits. Um, so the commercial bank money circuit is a lot bigger uh, than the central bank money circuit. So for example, in the Eurozone, it's roughly 80% to 20%. So 80% is private uh, commercial bank credit and 20% is central bank money. In the US, it's uh, 70 to 30%, uh, but most... Um, yeah, prominently, and uh, yeah, in, in, in the British pound, it's 97% uh, of the money supply is uh, private uh, bank money, and 3% only is central bank money. Yeah? Now, maybe one additional distinction we need to make here is uh, that central bank money is not only circulating between the central bank and banks. It's true that it's only circulating in a digital form between central bank and banks, but central bank money does also circulate between non-banks and banks. And when I say non-banks, I mean you and me, private people, households, companies, um, anything and anyone who has no banking license basically is a non-bank. And we can also access central bank money, namely in the form of cash and banknotes. So this is also central bank money. And one thing that will be really important uh, today will be to make this distinction between what is the difference between cash central bank money and the commercial bank money which we hold on our bank accounts exactly and that's what we're uh, going to look at now uh, when we focus on both uh, different entities that create uh, the money which is the public sector and the private sector but before we look into this maybe one last point about um, the uh, creation of this money of uh, the commercial banks and the central banks right um, because uh, what is very important to understand is that the creation of commercial bank money um, is uh, proactive. So what they do is, in the first place, they create the money, and then, secondly, in the uh, ret or retrospectively, um, the central bank then creates the money. So there are very different theories of how commercial banks actually work. There's the um, uh, intermediaries of loanable funds theory. There's the um, uh, money multiplier theory, where banks basically are um, uh, working retrospectively um, or um, not proactively in the money creation business. But this is not really the reality. So commercial banks create the money proactively. And then later on, the central bank creates um, its two different uh, parts of um, the money supply that we uh, we'll now focus on, right? Exactly. So we won't go into detail on this point today. You can talk hours about that. But one thing that was just really important to us, and this is why we are clarifying this in the very beginning, we do not agree to this um, 
this this presentation of banks as pure intermediaries which is the case and how they are presented in very many economic models which always shows banks first have to collect deposits and savings and then they lend out these savings again and this is just not how banks are working in reality banks can create their own money and after they have created this money out of thin air so to say they need to go to the central bank or to deposit to depositors and make sure to uh, get uh, the necessary amount of reserves in order to back the the credit they have they have just created yeah um, even though or uh, even uh, if, if that is true definitely um, we have to say that cash so physical cash which uh, is only created by central banks is still the anchor uh, so to say, or the basis of uh, the current money system, right? So maybe let's uh, focus on that first. So let's focus on the public money that uh, we can use or that is created by uh, the central banks. And let's focus first on uh, physical cash. Yeah? So physical cash is um, uh, very uh, important and uh, is very special as well because it's the only form of legal tender um, that we have in our system, right? And what does that mean? Legal tender basically means that um, everybody has to accept payments in this uh, form of money, especially uh, when you owe money to somebody, right? So imagine that um, I owe Alex uh, a certain amount of money and then I go to him and want to pay back this debt uh, with legal tender, with physical cash, then he has to accept it. Exactly. Maybe to be, to be a bit more precise between um, what do we have to accept and what not is, if I want to sell my bicycle to Manuel, for instance, of course, I do not have to give it to him and, and he has the right to give me cash in return. So I can still decide if I want to sell him something or not and, and if I want to accept his cash or if I want to have some other form of, of payment. However, if, for instance, Manuel um, comes to my place and destroys my TV, for instance, he owes me money. And uh, in this case, he has the right to uh, pay this money in form of legal tender which is in the end in our uh, system um, cash and you have to accept it so that is uh, that is the most important exactly thing. i have to accept and this, it yeah. and this is not necessarily the case with uh, commercial bank money but we will come back to this um, later on right but focusing back on 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 physical cash um, physical cash is not only um, important or special because it's legal tender but also because it's um, the uh, most important um, type of um, bearer instrument money that we have, right? So um, now we're getting into more technical discussion here. Uh, physical cash is a token. It's, it's called a bearer instrument because you are the owner of that particular token. It is uh, when you hold it in your wallet, it is your money. And then uh, this money is transported or uh, trans... Um, you know, it, it is uh, given to Alex, for example, when I paid him, when I pay him, and then this settlement or this transaction is settled uh, by um, uh, doing that transaction in physical money, which is a token, and therefore it is, um, yeah, very different to the account-based money that we also have, um, which uh, we will focus afterwards uh, when we talk on uh, about central bank reserves. Yeah, let's maybe go a little bit into detail here in this token versus accounts discussion because it's an ongoing discussion also among central bankers and in academia. 
And there are existing different definitions of what's the difference between a token and an account. And just to make it really clear what we mean when we say token and accounts, Manuel has already hinted, um, uh, hinted at that, is that when we say accounts, we actually mean classical bank accounts. So in order to make a payment with account-based money, you need to prove that you are the owner of this account and that you are allowed to access the money on this account and you are allowed to move the money on the account. So for instance, via a PIN, right? you have to identify yourself as a person. So that's account-based money. Token-based money, on the other hand, means you do not have to prove your identity, but you have to prove the validity of the token you are trying to um, transfer. So you have to prove that the token is actually um, valid, that it's a, a true token, and that you can move the token, right? And this is very uh, similar to when you think of cash, right? When I pay Manuel 20 euros, he might be less interested in whether it's me or someone else who give them the 20 euros, but he will be definitely interested in whether these 20 euros are um, are fake or, or are true, right? Uh, are a valid a valid uh, banknote, so to say. And this is how we approach this topic of uh, tokens versus accounts. There is some confusion because uh, the crypto community or generally a technical way of defining tokens and accounts might differ slightly from this definition we are using, which is mainly used in the central bank community. Because, of course, when you think of token in a crypto world, you mainly think of Ethereum. You basically think of a standard for fungible units of value, right? For instance, the ERC-20 standards. And these tokens might be even held in accounts. So this is where, where the confusion is created. And this is why we decided to keep it really simple and say, when we say accounts, think of bank accounts, there's always an intermediary involved. When we think of token, think of something that is cash-like, where you do not need any intermediary in order to, to do a transaction. Exactly, yeah. And now we already hinted on a, a, another form of uh, central bank money, which is called the central bank reserves, which is an account-based money, right? So this is the um, other type of money that uh, central banks also create. And this is basically um, the digital means of exchange for commercial banks. So when they um, do uh, transactions with each other, and these are enormous sums throughout the day, they uh, are uh, in, the, in the end always uh, settled in central bank reserves, which is account-based money by, uh, issued by the central bank. So basically commercial banks have accounts at the central bank, and then these accounts are credited and debited um, by the central bank and um, yeah, as I said, basically all of the transactions are settled uh, with uh, central bank reserves, either on a gross basis via real-time uh, settlement system. In, in the Eurozone, it's called TIPS, uh, where basically each of the transactions that are sent from bank to bank is settled in the background uh, on a gross level uh, in central bank reserves or on a net basis at the end of the day. So where basically all of the transactions are netted against each other. Yeah? But uh, the point is that we want to make is um, that even though um, we do not have access to these digital means of payment, because we as non-banks don't have an account at the central bank, all of the transactions that we do in commercial bank money are then finally settled in central bank reserves. Yeah, let's maybe make a really simple example to make it a bit more tangible what we are talking about. If I 
decide to transfer Manuel money via my bank account. And let's assume we are um, customers at different banks. So I'm at bank A, Manuel is at bank B, and I want to transfer him 100 euro. I basically communicate this uh, to my bank. And what my bank then does is it transfers this money from its central bank reserve account to the central bank reserve account of Manuel's bank. So this payment actually takes place in central bank money uh, via this interbank payment system um, in reserves. Now let's uh, look at the creation of uh, these reserves, these uh, central bank reserves and the physical cash, because this is also important when uh, thinking about different ways how to digitize the, the money um, that we are currently using. Yeah? Um, because it used to be the case that central bank money, as I stated initially, uh, is always or was always uh, created uh, retrospectively. Yeah? So uh, let's focus maybe on cash first, because this is still true. Uh, cash is uh, never created proactively in a proactive manner. So uh, to make it uh, more uh, tangible is uh, think of the central bank and you as the holder of physical cash. The central bank won't ever uh, provide this cash proactively uh, and give it to you so that you have the cash. Yeah? This does not, not happen like this. Not, not yet. yet. I mean, that's we do true. not know what's going to happen, but that's that would basically be helicopter money, right? This would be the, the first time when a central bank proactively uh, creates cash. And to be honest, I was always a bit confused because uh, in each uh, in, in each basic or intermediate economic textbook, you read the central bank creates money. And this is like monetary policy where the central bank kind of proactively creates money and gives it to customers. Uh, but this is not what happens. And this is not how our monetary system works, right? It, uh, and especially are, not with cash. Yeah. Especially not with cash, but also with reserves. And this is what we are going to talk about next, at least what it used to be i mean it's different today but what it used to be and this is what these textbooks also capture um is and especially before the financial crisis 2007-09 is that the central bank never printed cash or created reserves and gave it to banks or or end users but what the central bank did is it changed the interest rate right the main refinancing rate in in the euro area for instance and what happens when the central bank uh, decreases for instance its its uh, interest rate is that banks can also lower their credit rates and there will be higher demand for credit, right? And what happens then is that banks create new money by creating credit and then they go back to the central bank and demand reserves because as we have mentioned, banks need reserves whenever they create a credit, right? And this is how new money is being created. So you see that the new money creation is actually the very last step in this whole process and not, not as it is usually shown in textbooks, the first step. Exactly. So it's it, it was always retrospectively, uh, uh, but that changed a little bit. So you already gave a hint on that. Um, it started after the financial crisis in 08, uh, but then especially in uh, 2015, the central bank switched completely to this uh, new uh, monetary policy instrument, which uh, they called unconventional, unconventional monetary policy instrument. And that is basically the proactive creation of central bank reserves. Um, so that uh, was very different from what they used to do. But now what they do is basically go to the markets and then create central bank reserves, so digital money, uh, in the way that they basically buy uh, existing assets from either the commercial banking sector or, uh, I mean, indirectly also from the non-banking sector. So, for example, pension funds or insurers. Um, so 
why would they do that, uh, Alex? Can you maybe share a little uh, light on that? Yeah, so that was basically what's usually called QE or quantitative easing. And I will focus on the euro area to keep it simple now. What, what we were observing or seeing in the euro area was that at a certain point, this conventional monetary policy that I have just described, so lowering interest rate in order to boost the economy, this stopped working and it stopped working because we reached the so-called zero lower bound. So interest rates were basically zero or very close to zero and central banks were very hesitant and are still hesitant to lower the main refinancing rate below zero percent. They still wanted to be expansive in their monetary policy, so they had to look for other possibilities. And what they did is basically they decided to say, okay, look, the, the, the short end of the yield curve, we cannot, we cannot uh, impact that anymore because the short-term interest rates are zero or close to zero. However, if you look to the long-term interest rates, so let's say the 10-year or 20-year interest rates, we can still impact those. And how can we impact it? Well, we have to buy the securities that represent these interest rates. And the 10 or 20-year interest rate is, for instance, represented by a government bond. So what the central bank then did was it purchased these government bonds and through this they kind of pushed the yields of these government bonds also downward. And this worked very well. So interest rates decreased massively also at the long end of the yield curve. And basically as a side product, and this was really only a side product of this whole process, a huge amount of additional reserves has been created and these reserves are now sitting in the accounts of the banks at the central bank. And that's a good point because uh, this is just a side uh, product, let's say, of uh, this quantitative easing that the central banks did. Because um, what you now read a lot, or what you have been reading in the last years, where this was, uh, when this was highly debated, um, is that now the commercial banking sector has lots of lots of funds that they could actually take and lend out to the real economy. But that is not true. That this is something that is simply not possible because the, the non-banking sector just doesn't have accounts at the central bank, so they cannot hold these reserves, right? Yeah. So basically, yes, the central bank switched to a very active role uh, and a proactive role in the money creation, but only for central bank reserves that were then uh, sitting idle on the uh, commercial banking sector balance sheets. Uh, and could not be used to to loan these out, so to say. Yeah, I was I was always also always really surprised by even major media outlets uh, claiming that oh we have a huge problem because banks are not lending out the money they receive by central banks. I mean now the central bank gave they so gave them so much money why aren't they lending it out? And I mean it's technically not possible that they lend it out. I mean what they can do and this is what we are going to talk about next is they can create commercial bank money which is based on this central bank reserve that they have received. But to be honest and I even I, I did the math about this it's just impossible for banks to um, lend out uh, so many um, or to create so much commercial bank money and, and create so many credits in order to use up the reserves they have received from the central bank. So it was never the intention of the central bank to give money to, give money to banks in order to make them lend this money out, right? It was just a side product of QE. So now we looked at how um, commercial, uh, how central banks basically create uh, physical cash, but also central bank reserves. And what we showed is that they basically um, have something on their the, the asset side of their uh, balance sheet. So it's either 
um, uh, an asset that they buy, so for example, a government bond, uh, but also, for example, they create money when they uh, grant a, a loan to commercial banks. So you said it initially, Alex, uh, back in the day, it was like this, that the commercial banking sector created the money and then they had to go to the central bank and uh, get a loan from the central bank to um, um, yeah, fulfill the, the capital requirements or the, the liquidity requirements that they have to have. Yeah? And uh, so uh, central banks basically create money by a lengthening of the balance sheets so on the asset side. They have different types of asset. It can still be a little bit of gold, yeah, but also foreign currencies, but especially now it's um, um, bonds. Um, so government bonds and commercial bonds that they hold on their asset side, yeah? but also, as I said, loans to commercial banks. And on the liability side of the balance sheet, um, they create the deposits either um, that uh, commercial banks hold at the central bank, and these are the central bank reserves. And then these deposits at the uh, commercial banks can also be transferred into uh, physical cash. And that is the other position that they also hold uh, on their liability side of the balance sheet. So maybe uh, as a wrap up, central banks create money whenever they buy securities, buy government bonds or commercial bonds, or grant loans to commercial banks. And these assets, because a loan contract is also an asset, they are um, put on uh, the active or the, the, the asset side of the balance sheet of the central bank. And on the passive side, on the liability side, um, they create the deposits, they create the money, the central bank reserves or the physical cash that is either held by the commercial banking sector or also by us non-banks uh, when it comes to physical cash. Exactly. And this is why we call money also a liability because central bank money is always a liability of, this, of the central bank and And now let's move on maybe to the second and even more important form of money, at least when you look at the volumes that exists in our monetary system, which is the commercial bank money. And similar to central bank money, commercial bank money is also a liability. So it's, it stands on the liability side of, of the balance sheet, but of course not of the central bank balance sheet, but of the on the balance sheet of commercial banks. So commercial banks create money in a very similar way um, as central banks. They either create money when they issue loans, when they give credits to their customers, or they can create commercial bank money when they buy assets. So in, these, in, the, in this sense, um, commercial bank money is very similar to central bank money, but there is, of course, also a very important difference between central bank and commercial bank money. Manuel has already mentioned it. Central bank money is defined as legal tender by the sovereign, right? So we have the right to uh, clear debt with central bank money. Commercial bank money, on the other hand, is not legal tender. It is not legal tender. The only thing it is, it's a promise or a claim on legal tender. So if I see 100 euros on my bank account, this basically means I have the right to redeem these 100 euros in form of legal tender, which in this case would, of course, be physical cash. Yeah. So basically, to put it differently, what we use as money is basically a voucher on money itself. And given that uh, the central bank also cooperates in this public-private partnership and also, um, you know, provides the security uh, that um, the non-banking sector can also can always withdraw 
the money that they have to claim on against the commercial bank in uh, physical cash. Um, therefore, bank credit has basically become the new money or it has become similar to um, physical cash, even though it is created very differently in the sense that physical cash is created by the central bank uh, and uh, commercial bank money, which is basically only a claim against the commercial bank to pay out the sum in physical cash uh, is created by the commercial bank itself. Let's maybe now we have talked about how central bank money is created. We have talked about how commercial bank money is created. Let's maybe compare these two a little bit. So what's the difference between the central bank and which power uh, or also restrictions does the central bank have when it creates money and which power and restrictions does com does a commercial bank have when it, uh, when it creates um, money? So Manuel, maybe you can start with the central bank, which basically has the monopoly over the creation of base money. What, what can the central bank do and what uh, can it not do when it creates money? Yeah, it's a very important question as well, because as I said, physical cash is basically the foundation um, of our current money system. And uh, to put it broadly, also central bank reserves are the foundations because they can be created basically limitlessly. Um, and why is that? Um, so even though physical cash, but also central bank reserves are still accounted as a liability of the central bank, there is basically nothing that the holder of cash, but also as a commercial bank, as a holder of central bank reserves, there's nothing that the holder can claim from the central bank, right? So this basically stems from the past um, where we had a gold standard, but also going back further on uh, where um, the uh, merchants basically uh, used gold coins or all other uh, gold tokens as um, the money, right? And gold, I mean, obviously is not a liability of anybody. So it is an asset of basically all the institutions. So also um, the banks or the, the um, blacksmiths that uh, were becoming banks then, they held the gold as an asset on their balance sheet, right? And uh, as a, um, a certificate that I have basically deposited my gold at this blacksmith, at this uh, newly founded bank, I received a letter saying, well, I deposited three um, uh, euros in, in, in gold, so to say, right? And then these certificates basically were used as money, and then the newly formed banks, they created more certificates that they held uh, gold in the back. And that is basically um, the beginning of the fractional reserve system where we create more uh, liabilities of banks against an asset um, as the bank actually has, right? And uh, before the gold standard was abolished, uh, central banks were rather restrictive in the way that they created the, the base money, right? So central bank reserves, but also physical cash was uh, restricted because they had to hold gold against it. After 1972, the, when the gold standard was abolished, uh, central banks basically did not have, since then they did not have, or they do not have any asset that restricts the money creation process, right? Um, so even though, as I said, physical cash is uh, still a liability of the central bank, they will never have a, a liquidity problem here because uh, they can create basically endless uh, amounts of, of money, uh, which is a liability against the central bank. 
but we cannot redeem anything uh, against this physical cash. Yeah? So that is a, a, a very big difference because uh, commercial banks do have some restrictions. So. And that's also one of the main criticisms of the crypto community because they say of course look we have this institution who can more or less artificially create as much money as it wants and how can it be possible or how can it be a good idea that we want to build a stable monetary system on top of an institution that can artificially create as much money um, as it wants so you see here we need to trust that this institution is actually doing a good job and bitcoiners for instance of course do not believe in the central banks doing a good job so they basically say anything that can be base money needs to be scarce it used to be gold which is kind of scarce right which you uh, can multiply and maybe even better now we have bitcoin so bitcoin is actually the very best uh, base money you can think of because you do not have to trust anyone it's uh, super transparent in in how everything works and how much money uh, is existing and will be created uh, in the future. And which one is better is a question we won't be able to answer today, but I just wanted to draw out these uh, two two lines and, and these these two arguments that I usually, usually um, discuss between um, the crypto community and the more, uh, let's say, conventional um, yeah, financial system. And on the other hand, so we looked at uh, the creation of central bank money, where uh, there basically is not um, a limit Uh, prevalent um, with regards to the um, currency union or the the currency that the central bank is operating in right o obviously also uh, there are restrictions uh, in international uh, in the international monetary system because the central bank cannot inflate uh, its money uh, to thousands of uh, uh, percents because then obviously the value will be uh, devalued uh, internationally but um, inside of the currency, uh, it basically can um, uh, create limitless amounts of money, which uh, the, the big central banks are currently also doing. But in comparison, commercial banks are uh, limited uh, in their money creation capabilities. Yeah? And now uh, we want to focus on these um, uh, uh, yeah, limited uh, ways of how they can uh, create money. And one of them, I already mentioned that the central bank does not have any um, liquidity risk, is that banks do have this liquidity risk because they need to hold central bank reserves because all the transactions that we are, that we are uh, or how we already said, all the transactions are ultimately settled in central bank reserves. So they do have to hold central bank reserves. And this was a binding restriction in the past. It used to be 20%, then 10%. Uh, for years now, it was in the Eurozone 2%. Now it's 1%. Uh, but interestingly, for example, in uh, the um, pound area, uh, but also in the United States dollar, uh, there are no liquidity restrictions. Um, so the minimum reserve requirements, that's what they, that's what they are called. Um, uh, they are no, not prevalent anymore. So basically... Um, commercial banks do not have to hold a certain percentage of uh, liquidity against uh, the money that they have created. Yeah? But this always used to be uh, more or less a, um, a limited factor um, in the money creation process. Moreover, commercial banks already hold enormous amounts of central bank reserves due to the quantitative easing programs, but also the PEP program. For example, in the Eurozone, 
due to the um, creation of uh, enormous amounts of central bank reserves um, with the coronavirus, for example, also um, as a response to the coronavirus. And now they hold enormous amounts of uh, central bank reserves and therefore uh, the cap re minimum reserve ratio is not really a binding constraint anymore because they have enough reserves and uh, this is called excess liquidity uh, and uh, th so the minimum reserve requirement is not really a binding factor anymore. Okay, but what is a binding factor are actually the capabilities of banks to create new credit when you look at their liability side. So this is defined in regulation that was drafted uh, in Basel by the BIS and uh, they are called the Basel Accords. And in these Basel Accords, actually it is um, defined that banks need to adhere to a certain capital ratio, which basically, basically says you need to have as a bank a certain ratio between your equity and your liabilities. So the credit you are creating and And uh, this is indeed a, a real restriction for banks when it comes to creating um, new credit. And related to this, it's not only this ratio banks have to adhere to. Of course, banks can only create new credit if there is a demand for credit. And uh, not only generally demand, but a creditworthy demand for, for, for credit. So banks, of course, only give out new loans if they find good debtors that are willing or that are um, potentially paying back back this debt because otherwise of course banks are um, have to deal with um, uh, defaults and this is of course a real cost to them so it's also the demand for credit that defines or, or is, is very important when it comes to how much credit is being created by by the banking sector okay manuel we have talked a lot about the existing current uh, monetary system now we already announced it in the beginning that we also wanted to talk about between uh, also talk about uh, the difference between digital money and digitized money so in the in the english language it's really nice because because you have these two different words digital and and digitized maybe you can give us an insight into what's the difference between digital and digitized money yes sure so I find it a very great distinction. We sadly do not have that in German, uh, in the German language. Um, but basically, when you look up what uh, the definition of the digitalization is, then this is basically, or it can be described as um, the use of uh, digital technologies to change um, certain processes or even business models, right? So let's maybe think about communication. Um, so. We can now communicate obviously over the phone, but also via chat um, software, but also maybe Teams or Zoom or Skype. And that can be uh, compared to a digitalized communication, right? Um, communication can probably not really be digitized because what digitization means is basically to transfer something uh, from a physical format into a digital one and therefore basically Uh, to turn it into bits and bytes, right? So uh, digitizing uh, communication would basically be, um, you know, speaking through a, a, a computer, which basically mm. transforms the voice into uh, bits and bytes, right? Um, but when talking about the euro, this is really um, important here and quite interesting, I think, because uh, what we can therefore say is that we already have digitalized money right so basically let's maybe let's maybe make a big uh, uh, a quick example because i really like this example that uh, when comparing this we are digitalizing 
processes or we are digitizing things kind of right you we we have digital money today and it's digitalizing processes right so we are digitalizing payments that have a hundred a thousand two thousand years ago already taken place in a very similar way just not in a digital way so we had ledgers right where we wrote in okay manuel is transferring um um, money to to alex and this was just inserted into a ledger and now these ledgers are simply digital right so the process of payment is now taking place digitally while what we have not done yet is that we have digitized the money itself right the thing which used to be a token or a coin is not being represented yet in a digitized form um, in the interwebs so to say exactly and i think as an example, Bitcoin is uh, is quite uh, uh, nice to to bring because Bitcoin is not a liability against any institution, but it's an asset to anybody, right? And this asset can be transferred as a token from peer to peer. So basically, when you think of Bitcoin as money, yeah, um, then we can say that this Bitcoin is money itself in bits and bytes, right? And this is the discussion to our um, uh, yeah, to our mind, uh, if we can actually digitize the euro itself. So basically transform um, the account-based money that we currently use into a, a token-based money in a digital way, right? So we already have, as we explained, um, a token-based euro in the form of physical cash. But the idea now, or the question now is uh, whether we can actually digitize the euro in a digital way and then have... Um, yeah, a digitized uh, <laughs> euro as a token. Yeah. Digitize it in a digital way and then we have a digital <laughs> euro, right? I, I really like the sentence, like taking the euro out of accounts and make it transferable without intermediaries, right? This is kind of what the digitized uh, euro is. And this will be the topic of our next sessions here. We have another three sessions ahead. We are going to talk about who is able to issue this uh, digitized euro and we have already talked about the public sector versus the private sector and this is also why it was so important to us that we first speak about how our current monetary system works, that we understand, oh, today there is also the central bank, the public sector issuing one form of the euro and there is the private sector issuing one form of the euro and this is exactly how it's probably going to work out with a digitized euro as well that there will be the public sector issuing such a euro and the private sector issuing such a euro we are also going to talk about why we might need such a digitized euro and which will be the main use cases that are going to be addressed by this new form of money I'm really looking forward to the next day. So it's going to be tomorrow, actually, with the next episode. <laughs> yeah, so looking forward to that as well. Um, thanks a lot for listening to this first episode. And then uh, see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Bye.